friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, your weekly uh, uh, film anniversary podcast where we take a trip to the past, in some cases, the very recent past, to discover uh, and discuss and revisit, perhaps, the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. My name is Sam Noland. I'm your host as always, and I am joined once again by one of my very good friends on this earth, uh, who I tend to have on the show a lot, but I, I, I know who I like, uh, and I like this person. It is Guy Simons Jr. Welcome back, Guy. Thank you for having me, Sam. I like you too. Oh. <laughs> Just, uh... <laughs> well, thanks for that. Uh, a big capital L. For like <laughs> a big ca- and that's an improper noun too so that's that's saying something <laughs> right i i like you in all caps except for the i for no particular reason interesting interesting okay gotcha yeah you gotta I I earn that. that i i i plan to an eye for an eye <laughs> yes i i will earn that capital i <laughs> we are off the rails already but such of is course. the nature of extra milestone, which has kind of become my catchphrase recently. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I'll lean into it. This is the show where we discuss uh, 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 films that are celebrating an anniversary and something that I actually wanted to uh, sort of celebrate aside from these two films is that, and, and the listeners may not know this, uh, but I know it because it's my entire life because we have been spending the past Oh, six months at this point, or I should say I have been uh, in doing all these shows, trying to catch up to the present, as you may know, if you're a longtime listener, uh, when we we did an episode on Pinocchio about six months ago, that was celebrating an anniversary in February, and the episode came out in June. And so I've been spending the time in between now and then just trying to catch up to the present. And I'm excited to announce that this will be the last episode that uh, before we've officially caught up so as of next week we will be doing december milestones in the month of december and so i you know might not mean anything to anyone but i just i'm very excited about it i'm uh, proud to have finally got to this point and guy to close out the month of november we've got a weird double feature very odd double feature and i'm excited very strange Yes, they be, they just been getting stranger and stranger for a while there. I was trying to pair movies together, or in some cases, uh, do three of them that sort of uh, that sort of interacted in some way, that sort of uh, played off of each other, or subverted each other, or went about a similar story in different ways. And I think we came to some uh, had some very interesting discussions in that realm. Matter of fact, we did one of them. We talked about uh, Psycho and Seven last time yes. two very different serial killer movies uh, that episode was a blast that one was one of my favorites same yes i had a lot of fun on that episode this time there is no such connection with one minor exception uh which which uh, will be addressed over the course of the episode but generally speaking these two movies have very little to do with each other but they are both i think it's fair to call them uh, uh, modern classics, I think, is the title that I've heard applied to one or both of these movies over the course of uh, of my learnings in cinema. Uh, I don't, have, have you heard similar things about either of these? Yes, definitely about Toy Story. I know plenty of people who absolutely adore 
adore Toy Story, and I would I would consider myself a, a person who would call um, Unbreakable a modern classic. I think it is one of the best superhero movies of the past couple decades. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think there is this movie has sort of gained a reputation that is sort of it's sort of um what what's the what's the word i'm looking for it is open enough i'll call it the acclaim is open enough that it is clearly deserved but also it's it has not yet been blown out of proportion and so i'm excited to talk about all the goodness that lies within over the course of the show but i think in order to fully appreciate the strange way in which these two movies interact with each other and play off of each other and uh, and sort of tie into each other historically in an unexpected way that i found out moments before starting this episode i think it helps to go chronologically so with that in mind we are going to begin this podcast with a discussion of the feature film debut of Pixar Animation Studios, groundbreaking in the visual effects department uh, and also in the storytelling department and has remained an indispensable classic to this day. It is Pixar's Toy Story. Sergeant? Yes, sir. Establish a recon post downstairs. Code Red, repeat. We are at Code Red. Recon plan, Charlie. Execute. Move, 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 move! It's a... It's a big one. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Star Command, come in. Do you read me? The story of two toys. Oh, there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. Hello? Oh, yeah! Ah! Headed for a showdown. My name is Woody. This is my spot. Ah! I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace. You are a child's plaything. You are a sad, strange little man. And playing by their own rules. Draw. Fuck me again. I don't like confrontations. Buzz, look an alien. Where? <laughs> You're mocking me, aren't you? <laughs> oh, impressive wingspan. Very good. <laughs> oh, what? What? You can't fly. Yes. I can. Can't. Can. Can't. 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 The adventure takes off when toys come to life. To infinity and beyond. Toy Story. Look out! Can. Now I'm. I suspect that the two of us have a similar story when it comes to how we first came to know this movie. So with that in mind, I'd like to ask you, Guy, how did, do you even remember when you first heard about Toy Story? No, I, I just always remember. It's just one of those movies that I've just (laughs) seen, you know what I mean? Like I don't remember, don't really remember the first time I watched it. I do know that I used to own it on VHS Yes. That's how long it's been in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I still you have a VHS I, player in the house. I actually wanted to bring that up because I also had it uh, and many other uh, animated kids movies on VHS and I I wasn't able to locate it. I know we still have it somewhere, but mm-hmm. I did watch a DVD for this, but it gotcha. this movie always makes me think of the way that the, sort of the charm that 
home video used to have and doesn't really have anymore. Not that it's gotten any less reliable or uh, or or anything of that nature, but do you remember the days of watching a VHS or a DVD even and mm-hmm. knowing so well not only the movie but everything that came with the specific packaging of it like you knew all of the previews that played before anything and you memorized that that coming soon to theaters sound like i'm sure you know the one i mean right oh of course i know exactly what you're talking about coming soon to own on video and dvd (laughs) or whatever it was yeah coming soon like those those sounds are indelibly burned into my brain the same way that on the toy story 2 vhs i'll never forget had the trailer for for dinosaur disney's dinosaur and i remember that was the most epic trailer ever and so i cannot think (laughs) of that movie without thinking about about the experience of watching those pixar movies on repeat it like repeatedly as a young person and so i imagine that was very much the case where uh was this this was when you watched over and over again was that correct oh yes of course all the time and so uh sort of jumping ahead to the present was this was this your first viewing in a long time or have you been kind of uh keeping up with this one so to speak no, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it in years. I was very curious to to watch it again to see how it how it held up because yeah, last time I seen it was probably I was like ten or something. Hmm. And uh, and I imagine you had the same experience that a lot of people do, where even though it's been a long time, I bet the memories were still so vivid, right? Oh, of course. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, no, I could still like quote some of the lines when I was watching yeah. it. You know, I didn't even realize that I still remembered them. But as they came up, I would would quote them like, oh, yeah, that was a thing I used to say all the time. And and not only the lines, but I think it's the specific delivery of the lines, the specific like inflections and stuff. Even some of the sound effects uh, uh, where like the the sound of the Etch-A-Sketch, for instance, I can I can hear it in my mind as we speak. And that is something that is so unique to these movies that we discover at so young of an age that we don't remember them not being in our lives. You know what I'm saying? No, I 100% agree. It's just, yeah, it's always, always something that's just been a part of me as long as I can remember. And I imagine that that's that's, uh, very much the case for a lot of you listening, where whether it was this movie or or some others, depending on uh, when you were born specifically, there were just those ones that hit a nerve early on and have kind of always stayed with us. Some of them hold up, some of them do not. And I think... Some of them very much don't. It is not... I don't think it's a spoiler to say that we can both agree, along with pretty much everyone, I don't know anyone who dislikes this movie, that this is one of the ones that do. Yes. Very much. It's uh, it, it's often considered one of the greatest, not only animated movies, but just movies in general. And that's a moniker that's very well deserved. And even beyond the movie itself, something I was thinking about while watching this is that this is one of the milestones in film technology, animation or otherwise. It is the first 
feature length uh, computer animated film. There have been many shorts before, lots of incidental effects in live action movies. Uh, Jurassic mm-hmm. Park comes to mind. That was only a couple of years earlier. Uh, Terminator right. 2 is another one. So this was kind of this tidal wave of computer animation innovation that was going on in the 1990s and sort of carried on for uh, like throughout the 2000s i would say i i I feel like it kind of culminated with uh avatar and it's kind of remained at that same level ever since like there have been highlights and lowlights so to speak along the way but Mm -hmm. this was this is kind of yeah yeah there you go this is kind of this is kind of a right on like like right in the wake of it right as the tide was rising and stuff and i was thinking there are lots of these movies that are significant uh like milestones in technology it's weird how many of them are still great movies you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like uh like all those movies i mentioned like jurassic park t2 and stuff but even even before that even decades before you got 2001 a space odyssey that's one of the best movies ever and it was hugely influential even earlier than that jason and the argonauts i watched that recently it's a damn good you know adventure flick uh and so it i was trying to think and this is a this might be a little bit off topic but do you think there's a there's a specific reason why a lot of these movies that have such huge innovations still hold up so well like do you think there's any uh correlation between those well i mean you know the the first is always remembered you know it's always always will always be remembered and especially a movie as good as toy story you know like it was critically acclaimed at the time and critics still love it today you know Mm -hmm. and i think part of the reason too is that when you have a movie any movie that revolutionizes things this much right it's it seems unlikely that everything around it would be perfunctory you know what i'm saying like they're clearly there's clearly a conscious effort on whoever is making these strides to uh, to to tell it to do it for a reason you know like they clearly have a story they want to tell and these uh, technologies which don't exist yet are the only way to do it and so if they really care they're gonna they're gonna try and they're gonna you know push as hard as they can to do that and i think that's certainly the case with toy story and i was reading a little bit about the production of it and how it came to be and stuff and it was a long long drawn out process where it uh, it initially started with uh, with uh, Pixar in the mid 1980s. They sort of splintered off of Disney and started doing their own thing, producing a lot of shorts, many of which still are classics today. Uh, like Tin Toy won an Academy Award. Uh, Jerry's Game is another one that comes to mind. A lot of those early Pixar shorts are still great, and uh, they were just doing their own thing. When at one point Disney came to them and said, "Hey." we want you to do a movie for us like this, completely 3D animated. We want to be on the cutting edge of this. And uh, this was remarkably difficult to eventually uh, to eventually pull off. 
most of the reason for that is due to the fact that Disney was so unwilling to concede on most things. They wanted to have so much control over it. They wanted to, you know, just just lord over it and, you know, keep all the money and stuff and put their name on it and make all these creative decisions about this. Their conquest to take over the world has been going on for decades now, even <laughs> like well before Toy Story even. And so reading up on it, I, it was so clear to see like, man, it's always been like this. Like it's always been their mission to dominate the civilized world as it turns out. They're getting uh, in early and often. Exactly. Yeah. And and this thing was was rewritten at the yin yang. And mm -hmm. it's it's one of those movies where it's a miracle. It turned out as well as it did. Um, and part of the reason for that was that somewhere along the way, Steve Jobs, yes, that Steve Jobs bought Pixar and was really advocating for them a lot for the for the creative freedoms and stuff. And so we have almost single-handedly steve jobs we have to thank for this movie so let's give it up just for a second for the great steve jobs thank you for making pixar possible uh it, it's always R. weirded R. me out it's always weirded me out seeing his name in the credits you know yeah no i i didn't realize he was a part of it until this time around i was watching it and i was like wait that steve jobs <laughs> that can't be right <laughs> turns out it is that steve jobs lots of weirdly recognizable name and the names in the credits joss mm -hmm. whedon is a credited yeah. writer on this thing yeah that's like, something i found out recently wow. too yeah. another one and and it wasn't until a few years ago that i realized this was it was a different spelling joel cohen is credited as a writer not <laughs> joel cohen of the cohen brothers i thought that right. for years that <laughs> one of the Cohen brothers was responsible for uh for for Toy Story. Turns out just a different guy. Um gotcha. And you'll see and you'll see a lot of the a lot of names in the credits that have made their stamp at Pixar over the years and continue to work there. Uh mm -hmm. Andrew Stanton, Leon Critch, Pete Doctor, lots of directors like that. So mm -hmm. this was really a labor of love and it so many people worked on it. You would think that it would not come through as sort of a cohesive narrative, a cohesive story and vision and everything. And yet it remains not only significant, but really, really great. Like, I think that, that that's not even a revelation to say that. And so I want to ask, since it's been a little while since you've seen it, what was something that kind of stuck out to you in going back to this? Uh, maybe for, you know, why it's still so good or just something about the movie uh, in general. What was kind of your thought process as you were rewatching it? I I did not realize that it was only an hour and 22 minutes. Mm -hmm. That was something that genuinely shocked me. Um, it's the storytelling. It's it's so tight. And it's just like I said, it's just an hour and 22 minutes. And they tell such a, a, an incredible narrative in such a short amount of time. And they lay so much groundwork within the first, like, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And it just, the, the pacing is, is crazy, crazy fast, but like in a good way, you know, mm -hmm. and they just, it's just a perfect movie. I think that weirdly enough, a lot of times when you hear that movies are being like rewritten or reworked or something, uh, we view it as kind of like a warning sign, like, uh Oh, you know, oh, things, yeah. things aren't going well. Same thing with like reshoots, uh, that, that yes. happens a lot. Um, 
honestly, I think the reason that this movie is so brilliantly paced is because they worked so long on that. Like, like they worked on this thing for years for the better part of half a decade, if not even more. I think uh, uh, one of the early versions of the story, instead of Buzz Lightyear, they had Lunar Larry, which is just <laughs> to be, like, I would have loved yeah. to see Lunar Larry. And they had some, they had some strange, uh, uh, actors lined up to to play the role among them bill murray can you imagine bill murray's buzz lightyear that would have been weird that would cool. have been really weird i can yeah. uh, jim carrey was another one i can I, I can honestly see that would have been a lot zanier of a character yeah i don't see jim carrey toning it down in the way that the character ultimately turned out to be uh and and toned down in like line delivery not necessarily in personality or character or anything so i, right. I bet they would have, have made it work big. yeah i think you're right uh but but who knows i love jim carrey so uh, we may never know has jim carrey voiced a pixar character i don't, I don't think, think he, he has. has there's yeah. still time pixar yeah. figure it out he's he's doing kidding he'll come over for a voice act voice over or two if you will yeah I'm sure they'll I'm sure they'll get around to it one day. Um yeah. But yeah, I do think that is part of it and uh the all the setups and payoffs within the movie are just really immaculate and I want to I want to touch on what you mentioned earlier about the groundwork that's laid early on in this movie more so than ever before. I really took notice of the way that Woody's character is established in the early scenes before Buzz Lightyear yeah. shows up because we can tell within like five minutes of screen time, this is the toy, like the MVP of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what's brilliant is that we get, without even having to get some big, long explanation for it, how this world works. Like, okay, they're toys, they're alive, but the humans can't know it. Um, right. And uh, we're able to just sort of go right past that and establish it right away and get to the real story of the movie which is of this essentially like and and this is a a bit of a hyperbole but i think the comparison is apt woody's story is that of a spoiled rich kid you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah where for the better part of the movie i would say woody is a entitled uh selfish dickhead an exploitative force who will refuse to be knocked from first to second place even and will do anything and has no regard for you know the position that he has you can tell that a lot of the toys even before woody shows up are kind of or before buzz shows up i mean are kind of resentful of woody a little bit especially like mr potato head and uh oh yeah they don't have a lot of regard there you kind of get the sense that they're treating woody like okay you know here's the big shot here's the mvp who gets all the love and attention they just Mm kind of have to deal with it and then it's a story of humility where the exact same thing happens to Woody and it takes him a long time to come to terms with it. And it's only when 
they're forced into a situation together that they have to see the value in each other and realize that there this is not this is not a contest essentially like this is not a game where you know we have a first second third so on place we have a purpose to serve and the way that each of us fit into this story doesn't really matter and so the fact that that's all able to come across in 80 minutes is a miracle and so i think honestly we're we should be grateful that this movie took so long is what i say yeah it took so long and it works as well as it does Mm -hmm. yeah so so uh so uh what's uh i want to ask what's what's another thing like what was something maybe specifically about the way of of uh, that you sort of relived this over the years like were there certain things that you had like forgotten or that uh, that sort of came back and like oh i do remember that like we all have that experience yeah um i forgot um how how much uh sid's toys used to freak me out when i was a kid <laughs> <laughs> and they still kind of do honestly <laughs> yeah yeah that this is a uh, this is a g-rated movie for <laughs> kids and they and it's so perilous like i remember just being so concerned at so many points in this movie like when they go to pizza planet and they're lost that is the the most devastating thing as a kid you know the idea of being separated from your family or from your uh guardians or whatever and then not only that but winding up in like a psychedelic hellhole of of (laughs) iniquity or so you think at first uh yeah th- there's a lot of there's a lot of really frightening stuff especially the dog dog oh, yeah, really dog. scared me as a kid it, i think be- i think because the animation isn't great like that's been remarked on a lot that <laughs> right. that the dogs and the humans aren't very well animated it makes sid's dog a lot scarier yes very much so like these plastic like to quote quint from jaws dead eyes like a doll's eyes (laughs) exactly well i think um what what makes it so impressive is that the movie is so good at presenting these incredibly like low stake situations because like Mm. the situation is just about a kid who just lost a few of his toys you know what i mean but because it's gotten you invested into the characters and and everyone and their relationship with one another it's the most high stakes situation they have to get back to andy otherwise everything is done you know Mm -hmm. and there's a ticking clock element too like this is everything to them and we really get that like even early on like they don't even need to to sort of build it up it's right there from the beginning the way that the the way that they view the birthday party that happens early on the way that the toys all have this sort of mournful way of carrying themselves like this could be it like this could be when we become completely obsolete it's this sense of mortality even though Mm -hmm. they're toys and for all we know they live forever right there is a sense of obsolescence that is death to them functionally yes Uh, it's sorry what were you gonna say no i was just i was just making noise you know Okay. No, because I think it's, you know, it's it's about change and the inevitability of change and how scary change can be, you know, and I think by the end of it, it's, you know, you sort of come out accepting that things change and that's fine, you know, and mm-hmm. 
you gotta you gotta move on i think that's what all four of the toy stories are about and i think that's what's really remarkable about the way that they've been able to consistently deliver on this series like the like the toy story franchise is one of the most remarkably consistently effective series out there like toy story 4 is the worst one like think about that for a second i I think that's a damn good movie and it's the worst of the four like it just has to be something it's like saying that the conversation is the worst francis ford coppola movie from the 70s like (laughs) technically yes because that i mean hell of uh the competition is insane and that's a five-star movie in my book and i do not give those out often so there are some things that are just so remarkably impressive that it's hard not to be in awe of them and i think the kind of the entire toy story franchise in one of them and the way that it paints aging as an inevitable thing uh and indeed a sad thing but also something that uh that can a lot of peace can be found in and right I think it's very it's really valuable that the movie does not end immediately after that really intense climax. Like the last up up until the last like 2 minutes. The last 30 or so minutes of this movie are just really really intense in the way that this is it. This is our moment. Everything has to go right and the fact that so many things go wrong like at the last possible second just raises those stakes further and then when they finally succeed and they land back in that van, I love that we get a little epilogue. It, you know, it cuts to they moved into their new house. It's Christmas and it's at this point where I need to I need to acknowledge this because I never noticed this before and it I've been thinking about it all day. Okay. So <laughs> this mo- so so this movie and Pixar in general are known for being the studio that makes animated movies that kids can enjoy, but that adults enjoy possibly even more. To the point where I think adults have more affection per- for Pixar than kids do at any time period, like over the over the years. And so uh, it's kind of interesting how they're able to tap into such a universal thing that speaks to both kids and adults. But because of right. that, there are a lot of jokes throughout these movies that are that a lot of kids won't get and certainly there are many that in recent years i've come to understand like oh that's why that's funny that i never realized before that flew over my head the hundreds of times i watched these movies as a kid Mm -hmm. and i think this one might uh, of like the early pixar output some of the jokes in this might be the most adult. You know what I'm saying? Like the <laughs> yeah. one that w- one of them that really hit me this time was uh, it's right after it's right after Woody accidentally knocks Buzz out the window and, and didn't mean to, but it happened. And all the other toys were already suspicious that Woody was like holding a grudge. And so they're, they like hold a mutiny. It's actually really crazy the way that they all, <laughs> you know, they gang up on Woody and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Andy comes in, they have to freeze in position. They have to, you know, assume that you know the role that they're just toys and at one point at one point woody looks over there and there's mr potato head with the etch-a-sketch and draws a noose that's right yeah (laughs) 
a freaking noose. Yeah, was... Like that just that hit me this time. That is so dark. Like I didn't even so know what dark. a noose was as a kid. Yeah. And not only wild, that, wild joke. Not only that, but seconds before, I think it's uh, I can't remember who it is. It might be Ham or Slinky or someone. Someone says uh as they're just starting the mutiny let's hang him up by his pull string i'm like jesus <laughs> christ <laughs> the hell he's kind of an image is that yeah these toys are staging a lynch mob <laughs> i know right it's pretty much what it is i mean yeah we never get an image as gruesome as that i don't think right but, but it's definitely what they're planning and so and so there are all these there are all these jokes and there is one that and it's been a couple of years since i've seen it but there is one that i saw this time i did like a quadruple take i had to rewind it just to make sure i heard it right and it's at the end and and forgive me because this is going to get a little crass but if 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 there are any children listening to this don't tell your parents but <laughs> strap in everyone so it's Christmas and the soldiers are in the Christmas tree with the walkie talkie. They're giving recon. Here's what, here's all the presents that everyone's opening. And, and everyone's has this new outlook on life. Like, Oh, let's, we're not going to get replaced. We're just going to get new friends. And so I think that's something that carries over nicely into the subsequent movies. And, uh, uh, Mr. Potato Head is saying like, Mrs. Potato Head, come on. What? A guy can dream, can I? Or that's earlier in the movie. Uh, but mm. later in the movie, what Rex says, I can't believe this this flew over my head so many times, says, ooh, and I'm not going to do a Wallace Shawn impression because I can't. I tried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but says, maybe Andy will get another dinosaur, maybe a leaf eater, so I can play the dominant predator. Yeah, like, jesus oh my god (laughs) did rex just make a bdsm joke is that what i'm seeing is that what i just heard i think so i I could not believe it yeah no when that happened i just sat there in silence for a while (laughs) (laughs) i had to really rethink my whole life for a second i was like that is that is wild Oh my! So I will never. It's very likely that I will think about that whenever I think about this movie now, because it's just so strange that that was that you know that they snuck that in there. It's so subtle that of course they got away with it, but just that that was on their mind. Right. <laughs> it's so strange, but yeah. So so all that is to say that there's a lot there's a lot of appeal in this movie and one thing i wanted to talk about and it's what i sort of mentioned earlier is the 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 character of woody Mm -hmm. i want to i want to know from you guy what were your feelings on woody over the course of this movie because i think i had a different experience than i have for most of the other times i've seen this movie while watching it again i mean i think it was sort of similar to yours maybe not as extreme as yours but i definitely was not a fan of, of him after he like literally tried to assassinate buzz mm-hmm. and then but then you know he he tries to get him back <laughs> and then but then he also does try to get him to get on the rocket ship and uh leave to <laughs> pizza planet but yeah you know i think I think overall I still like him, but yeah, definitely for, for a little bit there, I was like, I don't know how I feel about him anymore. Yeah. It was, I, I was, 
having such an interesting experience because I've never really given a lot of thought before to the idea that Woody is a tremendously flawed character for most of the movie and the way yes. the way that he sort of vainly refuses to acquiesce to any other power uh to the point where again i i bring up the rich kid thing for a reason there's a sense of entitlement to mm-hmm. woody's entire demeanor for most of it that i do not deserve to be knocked off the pedestal like this and i you know i the best there is and they just don't realize it yet and it takes a long time even after that humility takes place to really grasp it like what what you were saying a second ago where he does go after buzz and he does try to rescue him you can tell that for a lot of it that's not because he cares about buzz it's because he cares about what the other toys think about them he specifically says i can't go i can't show my face in that room without buzz again it's about Mm -hmm. his own uh ability to re-infiltrate the power structure you know what i'm saying right yeah he just wants to keep his position yeah and so uh i and it's so believable in the way that i think it finally hits him when he's trapped underneath that box you know the crate with the toolbox on it you can tell that he's not putting on an act anymore because that's seconds after he did the whole thing where it's like hey give me a hand buzz and he has the (laughs) arm like the severed arm and is trying to pretend like buzz is there that's still acting in self-interest of a way like this is my ticket back over there uh, Mm -hmm. and not so much a way to rescue the both of us and it's and and you know it's raining out and everything, so it really sets the mood for this moment of legitimate self awareness and self realization to the idea that yeah i I did not understand before like i've I've never not been the best, you know what I'm saying like I've never not been at the top of the heap, and here I am knocked just from first to second place realizes this is probably how all of our other friends feel all the time they're used to it they have this very flippant attitude especially mr potato head who's just hilarious in this movie i can never get enough of don rickles in this role but just always has a remark always has a little joke and and they're some of the best in the series uh i agree and yeah, it's it's such a believable story, again, that they're able to get across in such a short amount of time. There are movies twice as long as this that completely fail. Like they completely fail at getting anything even remotely that profound across. And so I think it's I, I, I would not be hesitant at all to say that this movie is actually very not only entertaining, not only uh, technologically well-made, but legitimately good for kids to watch. It teaches actual valuable lessons about how the world works, you know, about how it's not a contest that you're trying to be in first place constantly all the time. And so I really love that about this movie. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's a masterclass in storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and speaking of which, there's actually there's a couple of things I want to talk about uh, in the way that it relates to kind of the basic premise of this that I've I've thought about from time to time. So what better now 
what better time than now to get them across here. So it's the premise of the movie that there are these toys and they pretend like they're just toys when humans are around. When they leave, they come to life. They have their own world. They have their own way of going about things. It's, you know, it's a hidden world, so to speak. Uh, Why then does Buzz not realize that? For a long time, he actually thinks that he's, you know, Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, an actual ranger from space sent to, uh, you know, sent to Earth or sent to this strange, mysterious planet. And there have been a lot of theories about this, about how, like, oh, maybe all toys have some sort of an adjustment period where, like, you know, Mr. Potato had actually thought he was a potato for a week and had to be talked out of it or something like that. <laughs> it's 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 a strange thing but you do get the sense that this is a new experience that you know they've never dealt with a toy this committed in air quotes to their role before i was wondering did that uh, did did that strike you at all the way that it's kind of strange to think about the ramifications of buzz's uh, uh, uh behavior early on in this movie yeah, definitely. That's definitely the the problem with with these movies is is if you think about them too much logically, you know, you can very easily poke holes into them. But um, yeah, no, I thought it was really interesting how like all of his like sound effects that happen yeah. with him like sound very real up yeah. until the very end when he crashes onto the floor and he just sounds like plastic hitting hitting the floor when oh, really? you know, his reality finally shatters. I didn't notice that. Like the like the actual sound effects didn't sound like a toy before. Yeah, well, it, and occasionally it does when like Woody hits him and you know makes the squeak noise. But yeah, that like, is hilarious. Most yeah, but like most of the time, like when um, Woody hits the button on his helmet and it opens up, and makes a you know like there's actual pressure releasing, you oh. know. But like that, but of course there isn't. But then when he find, when his reality finally shatters and his arm falls off, he hits the ground and it's just it sounds like real plastic. That is a heartbreaking scene, by the way. It's it is heartbreaking, yeah. That always destroyed me as a kid. Like just Same. you know, standing up on that banister, looking out the window, thinking I can do it. There's that mm-hmm. freaking Randy Newman music going on in the background. Ah. Uh, always it brought me to tears on numerous occasions as a kid and an adult but you know that is what it is um right yeah that's that's so interesting i never noticed that before uh so that's even another little bit of attention to detail that that speaks to why this movie is holds up so well um right yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's really interesting. And the theory I have, and I know there are other theories. I really should have read what some other ideas. My best guess is nothing supernatural. It's not like you know the actual soul of a space person uh, put into a toy. That's that seems a little <laughs> that seems a little far to me. But yeah, it's a bit of a reach. I think I think my best guess is that this is the first toy ever like that's kind of the implication is that this is really the cutting edge of children's play toy uh child's play thing to quote woody technology Mm -hmm. uh and this is as a result the first toy with like a significant 
backstory in the sense that you know on the box that's what it says is you know this whole uh bit of lore about you know zerg and star command and everything it's almost as if that persona has been has been a part of them from the start from all the buzz light years that are out there uh, so that's my best guess is that it's just a result of the advanced technology that's going on, the wiring in his head, man, and that kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's also, you know, sort of plays into Woody's fear about him is that, you know, Woody doesn't really do much except for, you know, just to pull the string and he says a few phrases while Buzz, you know, has lasers and lights and glows in the dark and has wings, you know. Yeah. Is that he's so much more technologically advanced than he is. He's afraid <laughs> that, you know, he'll get left behind in the in the old days, if you will. Yeah. And and it's you know, the the metaphor is obvious. You know, there's cowboys, there's the old days, uh, and mm-hmm. then there's the space guy, all you know, this crazy <laughs> cutting edge technology. My personal right. favorite feature is the karate chopping hand, the little button <laughs> yeah. on the jetpack. I love when yeah. Woody starts doing that and Buzz is like, wait a what? How are you doing that? <laughs> Always get a yeah, kick out of that. Mm-hmm. Same. That does bring me to a, a, a very interesting point. And this is something that's been brought to my attention recently, which is that there was in, I want to say 1986, I think, somewhere in the mid-1980s, there was a Christmas special produced by Jim Henson uh, called The Christmas Toy. And uh, was an Emmy award-winning special. Got a lot of play. Was was a real hit at the time. Mm-hmm. And it is about a bunch of toys who come to life when no one's looking, and the favorite toy is concerned that the new space toy is going to take their place oh, as wow. the favorite. Oh wow what the disney what the hell kind of cannibalistic stuff is that yeah. it's so weird i watched this special earlier and it it was it was kind of eerie how many narrative similarities aesthetically it's nothing like it it's all live action it's all puppetry work it's actually really damn good puppetry okay. like it, like uh, you, you can see the strings on a couple of occasions but generally speaking it's it's really remarkable and i expected nothing less and it's introduced and closed out by another, none other than Kermit the Frog. Ah! <laughs> nice. Which is a delight. So yeah, that's always. that's on that's on Amazon Prime Video. I do recommend checking out the Christmas toy. Uh, it's perfectly fun, perfectly nice, especially now around the holidays. But also just see how weirdly similar the premise is. And I mean, like it's it's not the furthest stretch you know like to think uh uh what if these toys came to life when no one was looking we've all kind of had that thought but i think the specific plot point of there being a space toy that like you know that takes the place and that takes the number one spot that's a little too weird for me i'm kind of like i see what you did there i see what you did there toy story yeah that's too on the nose a little bit coincidence But listen, I think it worked out nicely. As they say, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So that's right. <laughs> that's fine by me. Um, right. And yeah, and we haven't really talked a whole lot. I, I, I sort of mentioned it earlier, but we haven't touched on a whole lot 
the uh, the revolutionary visual effects of this movie. Mm-hmm. What do we think? Do, do how do, how do you think they hold up to this day? Um, they definitely don't hold up great. They mm-hmm. definitely feel a little weird at times. Okay, but if are there any specific uh, uh, characters or locations that sort of stood out in this regard? I mean, definitely with the with the humans, yep. you know. Um, and I feel like the toys get like shinier as the movies go on. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like they they felt kind of not super dull, but you know, duller than they feel. Like, I feel like in the in the later movies, hmm. but being that it's the first, you know fully cgi movie like this you know you let a lot of things slide and i, th- I still think it's pretty impressive for the time yeah you know? i think they were smart in having their first uh completely cg animated movie be about toys because right. they are you know the technology at the time already had kind of a plasticky texture to it to it by default so it only fits um and they, had, they had done a handful of other shorts about toys, uh, Tin Toy, I mentioned earlier, uh, and Knickknack, the one about a snow globe. That one's a lot of fun. So it makes sense that they would continue in this vein. Uh, I don't know how they went from this to bugs, but I guess, you know, whatever <laughs> works for them. Uh, it's the natural next step. I mean, it's toys and bugs. That's toys all you need. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be our, uh, our that'll be our cover band. <laughs> toys and bugs i'll be toys you'll be bugs, I'll be bugs. <laughs> <laughs> i love that let's do it uh, i can't wait yeah so if, if 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 anyone feels the need to photoshop that i will i will uh promote the hell out of that <laughs> yes and that is more than welcome toys and bugs i love it but yeah <laughs> uh yeah i think i think there's there's definitely um it's definitely noticeable. I think especially there are a lot of like, there are a lot of scenes that if you look really closely, you can tell like, Oh, they sort of, they had to take extra steps to make the character go off model here. Uh, just sort of little weird, jilty things. But what's weird to me is that for all of those seemingly simple things that, that don't seem like they would, that be, would be that hard to, to, lay people like us neither of us are animators but just intuitively uh there are a lot of really remarkable things that i'm really amazed they were able to pull off uh at such an early stage in this process for instance there's one shot uh, right when buzz first shows up in andy's room it's a pov shot and we see buzz looking around the room but we also see the reflection of his face on the inside of the helmet and it's really yes. convincing and i was really impressed by that like wow i bet that alone took like nine months to do just that one shot um mm-hmm. the other one that i never really took notice before but i it kind of occurred to me this time, like, you know, I bet that was really difficult was uh, Slinky, the dog toy, the actual right. Slinky that connects like the, the two ends. Uh, that was probably difficult to like, you know, work out the physics of how it would stretch and stuff and how it would get all, you know, bent out of joint and stretched at the end and stuff. Like, I bet they had to really do a lot with that. Um, you'll see behind the scenes uh, things of this movie about how, to figure out how those toy soldiers would walk, they actually nailed blocks of wood to 
shoes and walked around in them like this is how it would be done and we're like okay let's animate that so they really took a lot of time to make sure that everything was as authentic as it could possibly be to the point where it's i think we can both agree it's easy to get wrapped up in this movie you know what i'm saying very easy yeah like there's there's a there's in more than enough attention to detail uh that the minor bits of dated effects aside uh it would it would be easy to overlook them um and i know because i've done it pretty much every time i saw it like i was i was never watching this as a child and was like ah that doesn't look great but even still um, yeah not everything is super smoothed out but um just to just to go back for a second that mm. uh, you're talking about when buzz first shows up yeah um you get that pov shot um just to go back to the sound design thing that i was talking about is that when uh, you see that pov shot he's like breathing you can hear him going you know yeah and um just to you know really make you believe that he really believes that he's a space ranger yeah and you know when he when he later hams it up when woody opens up his his helmet <laughs> he very nearly dies you know yeah that's true i didn't even realize that because yeah there's i has it ever been cleared up do these toys breathe air like do they have lungs i assume not i always assumed no so that so you're right that would be just completely in buzz's subjective mind yeah i that's that's how i took it this time around is that buzz is just buying so much into his own reality that he thinks that he's breathing i mean listen that is olivier level commitment right there like I bet <laughs> exactly buzz could be a hell of an actor because uh, that's some some daniel day lewis stuff damn right <laughs> <laughs> i love it uh, so yeah, so we've we've talked a lot about uh, about Toy Story. I think we covered a lot of bases. I was wondering, is there uh, anything else that sort of jumps out uh, to you that we haven't discussed yet, or that you wanted to expand on, or anything of that nature? Uh, I mean, just the ending action sequence is like intense as right. hell. <laughs> it's yeah. an amazing action sequence. <laughs> Oh gosh, and and just the way that things keep going wrong. Like, okay, yeah. we're going up to the to the truck, and the batteries are dying. Well, oh hey, <laughs> we got a match, and a car drives by and blows it out. But hey, we got the sun; we can light the thing, and the mm-hmm. rocket's gonna explode. Oh, but we can fly, and then <laughs> yeah. we finally get it. Like, it's just this mounting series of obstacles that they're mm-hmm. that they're able to overcome, and and there's always another one right around the corner exactly i think the stakes in that scene escalate perfectly up until you know the very end when they land in the in the van at the end Mm -hmm. and i i was thinking about this uh a little bit earlier about how when it comes to woody's journey kind of what i was referring to earlier i think there's Mm -hmm. one sort of visual moment that really solidifies it in my mind which is when uh, when Woody manages to get back into the moving van, or or not back, but just into the moving van, opens the box, sees all the toys, is like, no, not that. Then opens another box, there it is, grabs the car, and uh, and pushes it out the back of the van. Mm-hmm. You can tell that th- that a growth has taken place because he does not try to defend his action in the moment his focus is 100 percent on i've got to get my friend back and without even without even 
talking to the car about it, which I think is a little screwed up. Like if I was going to push someone out the back of a moving van, I would at least tell them what was going on. But even still that you're, you know, it's, it's a very intense moment. And so I think just that one little uh, lack of action shows a lot of growth. You you can tell that earlier in the movie, he would have tried to sort of clear his name in some way. Right. Uh, like, no, look, everyone, I'm getting Buzz back, okay? Like me, please. I am a good person. Love me. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I was thinking about that. That That is kind of the defining moment of of uh, the change that has taken place for me. So, yeah, just a really, really masterful movie. And, of course, we could spend hours going over every single detail of it um right but i'm sure i don't think we need to i think everyone's pretty familiar with this movie this is it's it's a classic <laughs> for a reason um and i think exactly it's, it's one that's very well known i don't know anyone who hasn't seen this movie not only once but you know dozens uh, if not hundreds of times in some cases so same yeah. same there's there's a lot to love about it and i'm glad that we got to discuss uh, much of it and so Same on here. that note, I think, Guy, what do you say we jump ahead five years? Five whole years. A, a whole half decade. We're in mm-hmm. the 21st century, Guy. Ooh, post Y2K. Y2K didn't happen. All a hoax. Mm-hmm. That will not, Everyone's you know, that, that kind of catastrophe won't happen for another 20 years. So we're fine. Right. <laughs> And uh, and this is actually significant because this I don't know if you know this this is actually only the second time in extra milestone history that a movie from the 21st century has been discussed. Wow, that's, that's yeah. impressive. And so and uh, that that's something that I definitely want to uh, uh, do a little bit more in 2021 as sort of the more modern classics. But I think this was one that I was really glad that we could make the time for, because as we mentioned at the top of the show, it's a movie that has only grown in reputation and for really, really good reason. I think let's just cut right to the chase. We are talking about... M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable. Hi. You're in the emergency room in the Philadelphia City Hospital. I'm gonna ask you some questions. Where were you sitting on the train? Against the window. In the passenger car? Yes. You're certain you were in the passenger car? Yeah. Where are the other passengers? Your train derailed. Took a curve too fast. A second train collided with yours after it derailed. The debris spread over one mile. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you are the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, you don't have a scratch on you. I know what's going through your mind right now. You're searching for meaning in all of this. No one thing 
131 people died so you could finally understand the destiny for which you were born. Are you ready for the truth? And I actually don't know, uh, we didn't talk about this beforehand, I'll ask the same question that I did uh, in the first half of this episode. Guy, what is your history with Unbreakable? How did you, uh, how did you first come to discover it? Um, I came to discover it around when I was 16, mm. I think. Because I think that was around the same time The Visit had come out. Oh, okay. I think, and I had seen that, and I remember I had seen Signs when I was younger. I remember liking that. Okay. And then I kind of didn't like any of the rest of M. Night Shyamalan's movies. Yeah, that was kind of a bad on. period right around then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then um, I was like, okay, maybe he's coming back. And I realized I'd never seen Unbreakable, which is one, you know, one of his. And so I decided to go back and visit it. And did and you know about it? Like, like what was, uh, what was sort of like, were you just completely in the dark or did you know sort of what the deal was? No, I had no idea what it was going to be about going into it. I was went in totally blind. Um, I just, I just heard some people talk about it now and now and again, and talked about how much they really liked it. And so I, you know, I give it a try, and immediately fell in love with it. Especially, you know, being you know me being a, a comic book person. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's definitely true, and it's kind of remarkable that this movie came out just as the superhero genre in film was really starting to explode. Like I think like X-Men had just come out. uh, Blade was already a couple of years old and it was just before the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. So this really came at kind of an unprecedented position in the, in the, uh, the history of the art form. I had kind of a similar process of discovery with it. Um, where it was a movie that I just heard rumblings about here and there, you know, like it's not, it's not a movie that makes a lot of lists of like, here are the best so-and-so movies of all time. Cause it's, it's kind of hard to define for one thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But also it's a little unassuming in, in some ways as well, where it just doesn't, the way I'll put it is that it doesn't declare itself as being, a great anything you know what i'm saying like it's very uh it's very sincere in the way that it tells its story and not that any other movie is is insincere so to speak but Mm -hmm. there's something about this movie that if you see once and then like don't really think about for a whole years you're up for for a couple of years you're probably not going to be inclined to like remember it fondly or go back to it or anything i think that's probably what ended up happening for a lot of people who saw it when it came out in 2000 and uh were fond of it but didn't really understand like why it was so great just because they didn't really have the context necessarily and it's only in the years since the 20 years since that it has just been gaining steam and gaining steam and it helps that it had a couple of uh sort of uh, sequels to it mm-hmm. that it came into the popular eye but i remember hearing uh, you know, again just hearing rumblings about it and i think what pushed me over the edge was I listened to a podcast uh, back in the day. It's long since been discontinued called Profiles with Alicia Malone and Scott Mance, which is which is one of my favorite shows uh, 
and really uh, taught me a lot in sort of this formative period of watching movies and stuff in my life. And they were doing an episode about Samuel L. Jackson. And that, that was the way they kind of structured the show was every episode was about uh, an actor or an actress or a filmmaker. And they would just talk about pretty much their entire career, their best, their worst, their underrated stuff like that. And I was like, oh, what, what Samuel L. Jackson movies haven't I seen? And this was one of the ones I kept seeing. And I, I think it was on Netflix at the time. I gave it a watch and I remember not really connecting with it the first time. It wasn't until early last year when I rewatched it because uh, the movie Glass was coming out that I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is like really fantastic. And I didn't realize yeah. it before. Uh, and uh, I watched it again earlier tonight, and it's just even better with every viewing. Um, with that in mind, I'm curious, what do you think it was about uh, that first viewing and any subsequent ones that you've had between now and then that uh, that really stood out to you? Like, what was sort of the thing that made you realize how great it was? Do you think, do you think uh, that you can sort of pinpoint it into one thing, or is it just the movie as a whole? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a wholly original comic book or not comic book movie, just an an origin story for a, you know, superhero Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, and I, I've always really enjoyed that fact about it. And I loved it even more this time around realizing how much of this movie is shot in long takes. Yeah. It's super impressive. And with really Um, dynamic cinematography too it's so dynamic every every camera movement is so deliberate and you know just so motivated by you know all the movement and everything and like one of my my favorite sequence this time around was uh the car crash sequence i did not realize beforehand that that was all one take yeah um which is really impressive especially when bruce willis rips the door off of the the car (laughs) Yeah, and, that's, young and that's not even bruce willis yeah i was gonna say that's a yeah. different actor who they cast yeah. the role remarkably well right he looks very much like bruce willis and the actress who plays young robin right mm-hmm. very much like them yeah i remember uh i was i was watching it again earlier and it struck me like the first two things that happen in the movie are sort of the flashback or i guess not a flashback but just seeing right after elijah price was born the doctor shows up and says like what what what's wrong with this baby and the way that that she that scene is shot is very uh, unique too. the way that it takes place kind of in a mirror sort of establishing right off the bat, the connection to glass and things that shatter and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then right after that, we see Bruce Willis on the train moments before it derails and sort of sets the events of the movie into motion that shot, like he's having a conversation with this woman and that is shot from between two train seats and it's yeah. it's functionally from the perspective of this young girl in the seat in front of bruce willis mm-hmm. and so that that's really interesting the way it just sort of slowly moves back and forth with each you know with each sentence that someone says and there are all sorts of things like that just really 
immersing the viewer into this world where everything's a little bit heightened, but also really, uh, uh, and I hate this word, but it's the only one that comes to mind, really gritty, you know, really recognizable as just kind of a, just kind of a slimy world, you know, like just a, just a normal city that, uh, that, that we all sort of recognize the visual cues of. It's funny. It's very, it's very grounded. Yeah. It's funny. It there's be. there's a there's a scene um, a little bit later on where we see a flashback to Elijah Price has grown up a little bit and has uh, a broken arm, I think it is, and uh, is about to get his first comic book. Right at the beginning of that scene, a little thing comes up on the screen, a little bit of text that says West Philadelphia, and I immediately <laughs> went into in West Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> so. Same. How can you not? <laughs> I just i i had to i had to pause the movie just to giggle about that a little bit but. yeah same yeah the the glass prince of bel-air shall we say <laughs> yes the glass prince of bel-air i love it um but yeah to, <laughs> to sort of set the stage of the movie what it is is Bruce Willis is in a horrendous train accident. This this train going from uh I like just outside of Philadelphia derails and no one survives except Bruce Willis. And not only that, not a scratch on him. It's kind of miraculous. And what happens is that very slowly he starts to realize that not only was he uninjured in this train accident, but he's never been injured, period. Not even in this car accident that uh, that that uh, was sort of the thing that brought him and his wife, played by Robin Wright Penn at the time, together. Yes, uh, has never been sick, has never been ill. Though, with the only exception being that uh, that he almost drowned one time, an accident at a swimming pool. And with the help of Elijah Price, Samuel L. Jackson, who sort of uh, uh, comes to be aware of this, starts to think, maybe I have some sort of gift. Maybe I have some sort of invincibility that I've never really realized until now. Maybe I have some potential that I can live up to. Meanwhile, we got Samuel L. Jackson who is a, a comic book uh, enthusiast and loves the art of it and sort of the mythic nature of that and believes that it is sort of the last vestige of a particular kind of visual storytelling in, uh, in the modern society of ways of making sense of the things in our world that are maybe hard to understand through art, through artistic expression. And, believes that uh, that david dunn bruce willis for lack of a better moniker is a real life superhero and it's the quest of coming to terms with that and uh, trying to figure out you know is this even real is this even something that i that, that i can deal with and it sounds really slow and uneventful, and in a lot of ways it is. I think th- there's this movie is not it's interesting because this movie is not universally acclaimed in the way a lot of other I'll say more popular movies are. You know what I'm saying? Like this is I think this mm-hmm. is very much a 
cult not an, not an underground because it's a very well-known movie but definitely right. a cult classic in the sense that if if you like it chances are exceptionally good that you're in love with it uh mm-hmm. and if you don't then you're just sort of ambivalent about it and i think part of the reason for that is because a lot of it just feels like kind of a kind of a standard little bit of a sleepy drama does that make sense yeah it's not very action heavy until like the very end mm-hmm. it's very very slow paced and even then it's really unconventional action like there's there's yes. a fight scene but it is the most unglamorous fight scene you've ever had like the most exciting thing that happens is when bruce willis almost dies getting wrapped up in a pool cover same thing that happens to that drug dealer from lethal weapons so i'm always terrified (laughs) whenever there's a pool with a cover on it i'm like oh gosh is the is the lethal weapon (laughs) thing gonna happen Um, (laughs) but yeah most of this movie is heavy personal reflection uh Mm. And that's something that you might not be prepared for when you hear that it's a superhero movie. And I think it was wise on the part of of who is distributing the movie not to market it as that, to market it as a little bit more of a drama, kind of a mystery element to it. And as a matter of fact, uh, this to to sort of fulfill the tease that I gave at the beginning of this episode about how it connects in a strange way to Toy Story. I'm excited. What happened with I, I I'm glad to hear. What happened with Toy Story was <laughs> that uh was that there was a little bit of a tug of war between Pixar and Disney, where Disney said, We want to own this thing. We 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 refuse to make any movie uh that is not completely our own and sort of outsource <laughs> real, it to other studios. A real shocker that Disney couldn't work with someone. You think? Yeah, no, you <laughs> you would think that they would be, you know open to ideas and stuff but i guess <laughs> open not. to new things exactly yeah. <laughs> um but eventually what happened was there was enough they, they had enough sort of support from steve jobs among others and enough of their own resources that they refused to sort of concede to disney like it like if disney had gotten a hold of the technology they would have just abandoned pixar completely uh, but it was yeah. only because pixar had that ground uh, those groundbreaking computers and the and the animators and stuff that they were able to sort of like say no disney we refuse to do this thing for you unless you let us do it our way and they were like and disney was like oh, fine <laughs> essentially nice nice yeah, thank you thank you um <laughs> and it was that occurrence which which inspired disney to say like you know maybe every once in a while we can afford to let others sort of do their own thing and so m night Shyamalan had this script this spec script for unbreakable and it was right after the sixth sense had come out was a huge hit and and i think uh very famously and i think it was after unbreakable came out but the sentiment was already there there was a very famous magazine cover where Shyamalan was declared the next spielberg which i think at the time would not have been an outlandish guess like here are two Mm -hmm immensely uh, thoughtful and 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 really unusual stories that are told uh, that's unlike anything else coming out right now so i think no one can be blamed for jumping to that conclusion but 
-hmm. It was a hot property. And so Disney wanted to make this movie, but they didn't think it would sell under their own banner. And so they allowed it to be released through Touchstone Pictures, which and you'll see that logo at the start of the movie, which is sort of their their indie, you know, production company, so to speak. So if mm-hmm. Toy Story had not paved the way and sort of forced Disney to look inward and be like, you know what, maybe we can let you know trust others to do right by their work, we would never have gotten this movie among many others. So, and that was a lesson that they learned and carry on to this day. Th- let's hope so. Let's hope they, <laughs> you know, they don't forget it anytime soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause man, the, their world domination is, is looking pretty feasible at this point, you know? <laughs> yeah. So far they've been pretty successful. I mean, I mean, Hey, I guess, someone's gotta do it now that doesn't mean anything it's it's a thing we're not gonna get into it but yeah that is the deal with unbreakable um is that it is just this sort of a a very moody movie about sort of uh realizing your own potential and it's it's and it's i think it's certainly a movie about uh, depression about what it feels like to feel uh unfulfilled by yourself or by others and I think it's really effective. Uh, this is another movie that's really effective in the journey that both of the characters go on to realize their place in the world. And it's really philosophical and really deep. And I love it. Yeah. Same here. I mean, I, I honestly think it's Bruce Willis's best performance. In this I was movie. thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that this is his best performance. He really portrays how like, just sad and just depressed he is like i love that in that opening long take you know you just it just the camera just pans over to him slowly just taking off his wedding ring so you can just tell immediately this guy is at a point in his life where he's just kind of done with everything his marriage is you know on the rocks or whatever you know Mm -hmm. yeah and i and i like that um i like the way they go about that whole subplot like the 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 marital trouble so to speak um where it's not like he's actively trying to cheat on no. Robin Wright, so to speak, it's mm-hmm. just that they're they're just not feeling it anymore, and you can tell mm-hmm. that she feels it as well. And there's a point where she confronts him and is like, "I just need, I just have to know, was there ever someone else?" And he answers, "I think honestly, yes, uh, I did think about it." He doesn't say that, but right. I I I can tell that that he never went through with anything, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's definitely an element of it. And I love the way that you can tell they slowly start growing closer again over the course of this movie as Bruce Willis sort of manages to crawl out of, you know, the hole in the ground that he's been in, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it's at this point where we should bring up uh, Spencer Treat Clark, who plays the son of Bruce Willis and Robin Wright. Uh, who I think gives a really phenomenal performance in this movie. Shyamalan has is has something with kid actors, at least in these first two movies that he did. Yeah, I don't know. That's how really he does uncanny. It, but... Yeah, I think that might have been part of uh, the that uh, proclamation, the next Spielberg, because that was something that that Spielberg was always great at was working with child actors. So yet another reason for that uh, for that declaration. Yeah, that's that's fair. But yeah, I think this kid is really is really great at 
showing what it is like to be a kid that is troubled by your parents that doesn't even know how to make sense of it. And it's this, this intensely emotional time where they're your parents. They're supposed to be like, you know, these stalwart figures of authority. They know everything that's going on. They know what to do at every situation. And here he is, has two parents who clearly don't, who clearly have a lot of uh, doubts about you know where they are where they're at in their lives and things of that nature and obviously reacts in in very big ways and most notably when he pulls a gun on bruce willis which is which is so tense it's another one of long intense take. scenes <laughs> yeah and he's it's, it's a long take he pulls the hammer back he's got his finger on the trigger it genuinely oh. feels like he's gonna shoot him for a second oh, and it's gosh. really scary you're not entirely sure because because that's the other thing I, I really enjoy about this movie is that it never like fully confirms if bruce willis is invincible you know what i mean or if he's like really as strong as he is you know what i mean like yeah. other, than, other than the weightlifting scene it never like fully confirms it. I, I was always curious i always kind of wanted him to shoot him but i also didn't want him to you know what i mean yeah i think it's very interesting the way it does it where the way it does that where it's very possible let's say that Mm -hmm. just by sheer coincidence here's one person who has just a remarkably strong immune system i guess and and has just gotten lucky enough that no injury has ever come his way except for this one uh you know weakness that he eventually decides is a weakness that like that was the one time and so therefore that's gotta be it right um right so I think that's interesting. I think they definitely play into that doubt in Glass where they're like, you know, maybe they, maybe none of them are superpowered. I've always preferred to think that uh, that he is. That no, same, for sure. That there is something uh, really remarkable about this one person and by extension, very likely, lots of others throughout the world. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, these, these are the heroes of yore that we've always heard about and uh exactly. that's always the way i've looked at it um it is interesting to go back to this movie knowing the way it kind of turns out it's we have we have kind of a um you know young peter parker in iron man 2 kind of thing where there's a character briefly in this movie that m night Shyamalan later retconned into saying like yep that's young james mcavoy right there it all happened mm-hmm. uh from the beginning mm-hmm. so it's it's interesting to keep an eye out for these things, but I think this definitely stands on its own as a really uh, just remarkable piece of storytelling. And here's something that uh, I've I've heard a few people kind of address, but I've never really thought about it this hard until today. And I want to know if you if you thought uh, if you picked up on any of this, or if it was just me. I got to thinking, is there perhaps a bit of a racial element to this movie where we have Samuel L. Jackson, who is who has been uh, ridiculed all his life and has always gotten the short end of the stick and therefore has no choice but to believe I am the villain. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Uh, and then, meanwhile, we have uh, we have Bruce Willis, who, you know, by all accounts, has 
you know, pretty good standing in life, you know, is married with a kid, granted, not happily for a lot of it, but, you know, has a good, well-paying job, gets a hell of a raise early in the movie. So money's (laughs) no issue. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it, I was wondering, is this maybe a movie in addition to being about all these, all these mythic elements that we've been discussing about the way that different kinds of people in America, about different races, how they experience depression, so to speak. Whereas you have, you have, uh, you have Mr. Glass, the black character feels unfulfilled by the world who is never allowed to be great. And then we have David Dunn, the white character who's sort of unfulfilled by himself and just doesn't feel like he can do it. Like, does that, does any of that make sense? What I'm saying? No, it does. I, I've never thought about it like that, but that's really interesting. I just, I would love to hear someone else uh, really get into this because I read in, I, I read a little bit that, uh, that Samuel L. Jackson's hair in this movie, very memorable hairstyle was based mm-hmm. on Frederick Douglass. So like uh, it's right there in the text where Frederick Frederick Douglass was uh, an abolitionist and a public speaker in the post Civil War years, who was really advoca- uh, advocating for equality and for suffrage and for saying like, listen, just because we're not white doesn't mean we're not capable of doing anything that you can. And so, right. And yet, just because of the way that society's been structured for so long, so tragically long. Uh, this is the this is the world that we have to deal with and this is the experience that we have to lead that is so much more difficult on a day-to-day basis and so i would not be surprised if that was right there like in the inspiration i i, I really should have looked to see if Shyamalan has commented on this um uh Shyamalan, who does appear in this movie by the way makes a little cameo he does. as someone in mm-hmm. the in the uh in a stadium it makes the makes an appearance as the same character in Glass. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Like, okay, I <laughs> yeah, guess that's like, fine. I, yeah, I didn't really need a follow up with that character, but sure. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, you know, that that's not yeah. the biggest problem with that movie. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, I think I think uh, I I feel like I might be onto something there. You know, where uh, no, I think so. That's really interesting. I've never thought looked at it like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, even uh, even beyond that, I think this is just a really powerful story. And the way th- this is another one, like it's longer than Toy Story, it's like an hour and fifty minutes, but it feels mm-hmm. it covers so much length that it feels it feels like it has a longer movie's worth of content in a smaller package. You know what I'm saying? Right. No, yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. It's, it's, it, it is honestly impressive that they managed to do what they did in an hour 46 minutes too. You know, same thing with Toy Story, but just different, you know, doing different things, you know? Mm-hmm. To the point where I actually wish it was kind of longer. Like, the, like the, there's been a lot of comments made about this movie about how the ending feels really abrupt. Uh, and it does, mm-hmm. to be fair, I think. Yes, the very way... much. I love this movie and I will definitely admit that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know we get the revelation at the end that uh, that Elijah Price was behind all this from the start and was orchestrating these tragedies just in the hopes that someone would emerge as this 
hero that he's been looking for and uh, trying to seek out because he feels like that's his purpose in life for all these you know all these years or all these months or however long it's taking we get that revelation and then like within a couple of minutes we get just this frankly this really perfunctory like bit of text on screen like yeah and then uh, and then david dunn got the cops and he's in a <laughs> mental institution now yep and everything ended up happily ever after <laughs> Like I wish this I wish there had been just an extra five minutes, even just a little epilogue sort of reflecting on it. Like I do appreciate kind of leaving it at that, like in a really stark way, saying like, yeah, the all this good was done. And and uh you can tell at in that ending that Bruce Willis has is a lot happier, has sort of emerged, like I said before, from that hole in the ground. Uh, and yet right as that happens realizes that it was all it, it was all part of this evil scheme so to speak like that's what it was like like let's be fair it was it was an evil thing that was done uh all these people that were killed and just just a reflection on that like and i know this movie had a sequel but i didn't really feel like we got that from glass you know what i'm saying Right. No, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of choose to look at this one as, excuse me, more of like a, just a self-contained story, not trying not to look at the sequels at this one, Mm -hmm. but um, you know, since they, since they happen, it's kind of hard not to. Yeah. But uh, I I think it works. I don't know. I'm curious to see how you feel about this, but I always sort of looked at Elijah as a a sympathetic villain because I, I get, I understand you know, growing up your whole life and feeling so different from everyone else and just searching for your purpose. I'm not excusing the things that he did because everything sure. he did was, you know, awful. But, you know, I just, I think he's a very sympathetic villain and I really feel for him by by the end of the movie. And then I, I think they, you know, him and, him and David Dunn did form a bit of a friendship. And then so to have that, to have the rug pulled out from under, under David Dunn really, really hits hard, you know? Yeah. I can't imagine what this must have been like seeing it back in November of 2000 and just seeing like, oh, that's the ending. That's like a really bleak ending, right? Yeah. You know, immediately following what we thought was going to be a happy one. Uh, and yeah. so maybe it's just part of the power of this movie. I wonder if that was, a, you know, a bit of a sacrifice that Shyamalan decided to make. Like, yeah, I know it's going to be abrupt, but I think that it will be made up for by uh the the feeling that it will be left with because a lot of times that's how that's how depression works you know like right things just seem like they're going fine and then just on the flip of a dime it all goes out the window and then in and it feels like it'll never come back again uh Mm -hmm. so i i would not be surprised to find out that Shyamalan has dealt with depression a lot throughout his life um but yeah, I do, I do totally agree with what you're saying about how uh, Elijah is, is a sympathetic villain. It's what I was kind of referencing earlier, where by familiarizing himself with this sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, diametric form of storytelling with comic books, where mm-hmm. 
most of the time, generally speaking, there is a very clear line. There's the good guy and there's the bad guy. He comments on that throughout the throughout the movie, where you can tell in the artwork alone, just the visuals of it, there here are these visual indicators as to how you can tell who the hero is and who the villain is. And he's just been, you know, so familiar with this art form that he looks at himself, he looks at the way that others have treated him and thinks, well, this is how villains are treated. I right. must be that. Mm-hmm. And there's a, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious if, uh, if this was intentional or not, or if I'm just sort of grasping at straws here, but there's a scene earlier in the movie that I think kind of informs uh, Mr. Glass's entire character. And it's one that he's not even in. It's when, Bruce Willis goes to, I guess, the office of, like, you know, his supervisor or whatever, and says to the woman there, says, hey, can you ask Mr. So-and-so to look through the records and see how many sick days I've had? And she's like, okay, sure. But right before that, she she mentions sort of offhand how, like, oh, I heard you were in a really terrible accident. I was in an accident once, uh, got thrown off a horse or something like that and the horse got put down and i think maybe that in a nutshell is kind of encapsulating elijah price's experience where uh you you imagine this horse just not you know actively doing anything probably just sort of uh doing whatever comes naturally and then you just get killed for it right like like elijah price has not done anything he's been tremendously unfortunate and and has been afflicted with this uh, condition that makes the bones really easy to easy to break or anything and receives all this ridicule gets called names at school uh, and and has trouble just leading a normal life like anyone else would that's that's a really tragic story that's the story of of a tragic villain even Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, and the tragedy isn't what they've done it's that they were the villain, you know? Right. Right. It's more of uh, what has been done to them mm-hmm. than anything. And and that the, be- the horrible things they've done are not their fault in a way. Like, I think, I think the, the word martyr is the operative term here. And then, again, on the other side of the spectrum, we've got david dunn who is you know experiencing survivor's guilt more than anything after the after the train accident and just after going through this experience just has to reckon with his place in the world like like he can't just put it off any further that's the sense i get is that uh is that he's been dealing with these things with these existential crises for a long time and it's only now like i can't ignore it anymore you know Right, he's at the point where he has to accept that he is special and different. Mm-hmm. Yeah this this is such this is such a layered, really really thoughtful movie, and uh, I love getting to talk about it. So I want to ask uh, I want to ask is is the what 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 else uh, did you want to touch on with this movie? Do do you think we pretty much covered it, or is, are there other things that uh, that we haven't gotten to yet? Um, I'm looking through my notes. I have a lot of notes. Um, I guess mainly the score. Um, I yeah. really love the score of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's one of the scores that I listen to just by itself a lot. Yeah, just because I just love every second of it, and it just swells at all the perfect moments. It's just 
one of one of my favorite scores of all time. Yeah, one of my favorite moments is when uh, is when David Dunn finally goes after that child kidnapper and just starts putting him in a chokehold and just that really triumphant music starts like this is it i'm finally doing something good uh and -hmm. it's really effective even though as i said earlier not a very remarkable fight scene it's it's just sort of two guys wrestling around for 30 seconds uh yeah it's really messy and clumsy and like just throwing him into walls like i really appreciate that it's not a pretty fight scene the way you know most superhero movies do now Uh uh-huh yeah, it's uh, the the music really uh, really lends a lot to this movie. And it, it, did you also get really excited when you heard that theme song play at the end of Split? Were you like, oh, oh. Jesus? Yes, very much so. <laughs> and he shows, and Bruce Willis shows up on camera. I was so excited. Uh, I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> you were like, oh, they're gonna cross over, and it's gonna be awesome. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> it was fine at best. Yeah. <laughs> Um, something that I had never noticed before is that um, the the son, whose name I'm forgetting, but um, he's playing with his friends. He's playing football with uh, one of his friend's older cousins. Mm-hmm. That 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 was the person that the woman on the train was talking about. He was the six one two twenty guy oh, who could run forty. You're right. Yeah, yeah I, I noticed that this time. I was like, oh my god that's the guy i did not even notice that that's that's remarkable yeah that's it's, it's that attention to detail you know mm-hmm. exactly exactly you want to know something i noticed uh and i don't yeah. even know if this means anything but i'm like is that a thing i would be surprised if that was a thing <laughs> it's when it's when uh david dunn and uh and his son joseph is his name they go joseph, to see you. Uh, they go to see Elijah Price the first time after that note gets left under the windshield wiper. And there's a point where you can tell David Dunn starts to suspect Elijah Price of like, what's this guy up to? And says to Joseph, don't drink any more of that water, son. I'm like, aha, the aversion to water starts here. (laughs) I didn't even notice that. I thought it was more weird that he told him to go throw it away in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what a bold, what a bold power move to I know, send right? to throw the glass of water away <laughs> in the recycling i would say yeah. <laughs> right yeah exactly mm-hmm. and i i also want to talk about the like the relationship between bruce and and, and robin mm. like i think the movie does an incredible job of you know because I, f- I feel like a lesser movie they would have like some big argument explaining their marital problems you know what i mean they never have that it's just through subtleties in the writing and with the acting like Mm -hmm. i love in the beginning when bruce willis is going up the stairs to his bedroom because they live in two separate they sleep in two separate bedrooms and um i think i think it might have been the scene you were talking about earlier but um bruce willis never looks her in the eye at the beginning yeah i always thought that was really interesting he's just looking down the whole time but then you know, as a relationship, you know, comes back when they're sitting at the at the dinner table at the end, they're both looking at each other in the eye and having a, a real conversation with one another. Yeah, and they and start then, to like, you know, they start sleeping together again, literally. And, exactly. And figuratively, presumably. But and yeah. figuratively, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always love that scene when he carries her up to the bedroom and says, I had a bad dream. 
Yeah. And she says it's over now. It's so, so powerful. That's another really good tracking shot all the way up the stairs with just Robin Wright's head fixated in the frame. Yes. So good. Yeah. I, I, it's an incredibly well-made movie. I love, I love, uh, I love what you were you're saying earlier about the way that they don't really argue and uh, early on, I should say, you can tell that they both are aware that this isn't working this is falling apart but also you get the sense that they feel the need to keep it going for the well-being of their son like they're trying to put on a brave face and say like let's keep going for joseph's sake uh but you know that facade just starts falling throughout the movie and it's only then when it starts to sort of turn around and pick back up again uh so yeah oh so much so much great stuff in this movie Mm -hmm. i love it so much i'm glad that we got the chance to uh i'm glad that we got the chance to talk about it and i think it's definitely a movie that especially now like like as the years go on i would encourage like just keep going back to it because i think it's really a movie that more so than any other proper superhero movie i've seen Mm-hmm. really understands why we gravitate to these stories so much like i can't think of another one like there there are lots of other superhero movies that understand a specific character really well and uh, and why we keep going back to them i think about the christopher nolan batman movies uh, and even the ones right. before the burton schumacher ones they all have mm-hmm. elements of understanding the character this goes for a lot of others uh, you know throughout the genre but this is one that really encapsulates all of it. It helps that they're acknowledging the art form itself. Like, you know, this mm-hmm. is this is a comic book, so they certainly have a bit of leeway there. But also, I feel like they're really getting to the heart of the hero-villain dynamic that we're all that we're all so familiar with and are putting it together in such a cinematically engaging way. That is endlessly rewatchable, you know. I 100% agree. Hmm. I, I I will continue watching this movie. It's one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's definitely worthy of the extra milestone treatment. So I'm glad. I agree that we took the time uh, to really dig into it. So so with that in mind, is there anything else? Uh, any last-minute details that you wanted to bring up? Um, I think that's about it. Cool. Yeah, I think that that I think that's about everything I got as well. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's our show. So, guy, why don't you let the listeners know if they don't already know where can they find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at guy underscore Simons Junior. Um, my links to my Letterboxd are in both of those. So, find me there. Very nice. Do do that. I encourage. Yes, please do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Nolan Sam. I'm on Letterbox as well. That's relatively easy to find. And yeah, I think that's everything we got from uh, the, the bottom of a pool wrapped in a pool tarp. I'm Sam Nolan, and I'm afraid of water. I'm Guy Simon, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you on the next extra milestone.